summer after I finished undergrad, I set off for Kenya for a semester with the National Outdoor Leadership School, or NOLS as it's called. This is a training course in outdoor skills like climbing and wilderness medicine, but it's also uh, an instru- some instruction on team dynamics and various leadership skills. This is a course that uh, NASA sends all the astronauts on before they go so that when they are in these enclosed areas together, they don't kill one another. <laughs> in my course, uh, in Knowles, East Africa, we trekked through the Maasai Mara, which is the Kenyan side of the Serengeti. Um, we wandered the countryside with Maasai warriors and slept out uh, with the lions and leopards and, and hyenas, listening to them killing and, and uh, feeding all night long. <laughs> we also sailed dows on the Swahili coast near the, uh, the pirates at the, at the Somali border which is just a wild experience. The dows are these, these large vessels uh, that have historically sailed uh, from East Africa all the way to India and back. They contain no metal parts. They're all wood, and they're just one sail. They're beautiful if you've never seen one. Check it out. But before we did any of that, we spent five weeks on Mount Kenya. At 17, over at the 17,000 feet, Mount Kenya is the second highest uh, mountain in Africa, and it is far more dangerous and challenging than its taller uh, sister. Uh, before you even get up to the mountain, you have to trek through a bamboo forest, which was actually the site of a rebellion. Uh, and then we would, as a group, we'd climb thousands of feet a day, only to descend into another valley and, and lose another thousand feet. Above 9,000 feet, the terrain got very sparse. It had a lunar quality to it. And it was amazing spending this time in this sparse landscape and looking out over the savanna for as far as you could see in the distance. Every day the weather came like clockwork. It was clear in the mornings, and as we started hiking, it was getting hot. And then the weather would come in off of the Indian Ocean, and it would start to get windy, and then you get sleet. And then after that, you get hail. <laughs> and then if you're lucky after that, you got a little snow on some days. And then it would turn to sleet again just as you're setting up camp. Isn't that fun? and uh, cooking, and just when it got dark, the clouds would go away and reveal incredible vistas of the sky, of the constellations there at the equator. It was a staggering and beautiful experience to see this every day. And then, after looking at the stars for, you know, however long you can, five, ten minutes, You pass out and do the whole thing again for another five weeks. After the first week, we started something new. It was called Leader of the Day. Our group of 25 people would split off into three groups, and each group had one leader to whom the guides had given a map and a compass. We'd hike all day using a topographical map. There are no trails. You're just you're just kind of you got a map that that shows the various terrain and you find your way. 
um, through places you've never been. In the evening, after after the groups would uh, meet up, they, they would all meet together, all at the same designated spot, and all having gone different routes to get there. Um, so. When they started this leader of the day, some leaders would go off and take their map in isolation, take their compass, and plan out their route in full isolation, just doing it themselves. So that seemed to make sense. They'd determine a plan, and then they'd tell everybody else about it, and then you'd set off. Other people would go the complete opposite end and give up the map and the compass, have no plan at all, and let everybody else, everybody just figure it out for their own self, you know, just, just as, a, as we go as a group, which is, seemed like an egalitarian thing, but ended up being disastrous. People would get lost with that approach. My friend Eileen came upon the, the model that was the most effective strategy for the leaders of the day. For she'd gather everyone together and discuss the route, and then she'd designate a map person and a compass person, and those people would be at the front of the group. Then she, as leader of the day, and knowing, having some sense of what the group was going to do, would hike from in the very back to make sure that everybody was together, that nobody got lost. At designated breaks, we'd all regroup and talk about where we were going from there and talk about our physical condition. Years later, I read Nelson Mandela describe this form of leadership. He called it leading from behind. You guys have probably heard a term like that, leading from behind. In his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, Mandela wrote, it is better to lead from behind and put others in front, especially when you celebrate a victory or nice things occur. But when there's danger, you take the front line. Then people will appreciate your leadership. That is leading from behind. Today, Jesus provides a lesson in leading from behind. He uses a different term. He uses the phrase servant of all. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all, slave or servant. As we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus contextualizes servitude alongside the virtue of following. Follow me. Every passage has got that sense. Discipleship in Mark means following Jesus. And Jesus concludes with that line. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a new articulation of an old biblical idea. An idea that is clear in the writing of Isaiah as we read it today. Some scholars refer to this as the suffering servant passages in, in Isaiah or the servant songs. It serves, it describes someone who is like a shepherd. A shepherd. That ancient model of leading from behind. Right? Just like Mandela described, the shepherd guides the flock from behind, and when there is danger, the shepherd guards the flock by standing between the sheep and danger. 
In the case of the passage from Isaiah today, that shepherd's stance results in disaster for the shepherd. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. You can see why the early Christian church interpreted this as a prophecy depicting the death of Jesus, not a huge stretch. And that context is very important, but for now, let's just read this passage as the ancient Israelites read it before the time of Christ. What is the tension here? What bear or lion is attacking the flock? What is the source of of suffering. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. We've all turned to our own way. I can't think about, help but think about that group of us hiking around uh, Mount Kenya. I also can't help but turn to what has gone on here with James and John. You've got to love James and John. They're so, it's amazing. They're like, okay, Jesus, I see what's going on here. You're saying that you're something very special and you've come to serve. Okay, you're here to serve. We want you to serve one thing for us. We want you to do this one thing for them. You've got you to admire that, right? It's, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty great but is also (laughs) primed by selfish ambition, turning our own way. Some people seek leadership for their own good. I know it's hard to believe, (laughs) but it happens. Never here in our country. Some people want to be waited on to subjugate others, but Jesus says that in the kingdom, greatness comes from serving. Greatness comes from connection, from being part of something rather than to be set aside. As we were talking about this earlier this week, Kathy was talking about how the role of teaching is one of serving and one of the the places where she's found great reward in her life. And we were talking about how the nature of teaching is you're passing along what you know, responding to the needs of students and enabling others to follow to become a part of this intellectual community. Teaching is about forming community, a community exchanging ideas. Albert Einstein identified one quality that is essential to new ideas and productive thought. He called it combinatory play. Combinatory play is the act of opening up one mental channel by dabbling in another. Einstein did this famously by, you know, he would take breaks and he'd go and play violin, right? He would he'd move out of one thing into another and then he'd have, the, he'd have these epiphanies. But combinatory play is really not just about uh, stepping aside. It is about connecting things in unexpected ways, It's about perceiving relationship. 
when Jesus talks about servitude, he describes something like combinatory play. He is saying the relationship between identity and greatness is different than you expect. Being great is being the least. It involves deeper relationship. Finding greatness, being a leader, the fullness of life, a teacher, necessitates relationship and belonging. The so-called greatness some people seek from isolation and freedom, that is not greatness. True Freedom is interdependence. True wealth is shared. And true greatness is servitude. But, but even with that notion of servitude, Jesus is active in combinatory play. He is no errand boy. I really want to talk about Wes Anderson and the lobby boy stuff, but I'm, we've got too much to talk about, so I'm going to flag that for another time. Jesus doesn't respond to everybody's whims. He's not a genie granting wishes. Jesus is a servant of all by meeting the most important needs, right? Like the teacher doesn't just hand out A's. You want them to learn. And parenting Another act of <laughs> humility and, uh, and servitude. We don't give them everything they ask for. On Knowles, on this course um, in Africa, we had, there was a term called expedition behavior. Expedition behavior said that like, you didn't walk around barefoot. You didn't go jumping off of rocks when it was the middle of the day, or, or you, didn't, you didn't just do whatever you wanted to do, because if you walk around barefoot, there's a very good chance you're going to stub your toe, and you're going to hold the whole group back. You have to behave like you are on an expedition. You have to recognize that you are part of the group. You are something much greater than yourself. And Jesus is inviting us to step into relationship here. Writer and theologian Frederick Buechner uh, says, your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's need. Have you guys ever heard that quote before? Yeah, it's a great, great line. That is servitude, to, to work, to use what you have and who you are in connection rather than in isolation, to feel your unique fingerprints as they slide across the fabric of eternity and know that you are ready to join. I've got one last story. Last night, I was bathing my two boys. I've got a a four-year-old and a three-year-old. And Jimmy, uh, the three-year-old, I've already bathed Henry, and he's toweled off, and he's running naked around their room. And Jimmy is still in the tub because he he loves it in there. And the, the water's run out, but he turns to me and says, Daddy, now I want to wash your face. And he takes a little sponge and takes the soft side of the sponge, fortunately, and, <laughs> and, and he like softly washes off my face. And it's, it was just so sweet, this little act of service. It was so beautiful. Sometimes 
being servant of all looks like spending 27 years in prison for the sake of a revolution leading from behind. Sometimes it looks like leading your friends through the wilderness or teaching a class or taking a class. Sometimes it is simply one person washing another person's face. But always the work is the same. To serve love. Amen. Amen.